Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. It is a very important week for the sport in the sense that we are recognising how important the positivity about mental health and mental well-being is at the moment and with that in mind delighted to say we've got paisley alongside me who you've already seen but paisley is coming alongside michael corfield sports psychologist and and michael obviously paisley's here as your dog but also for another reason that we will come to in just a moment just tell me about we talk about this week the importance of mental health and this the awareness week but it's it's something that goes on every day. It's something that you're particularly involved with uh, in a number of different sports through your career. When we have Mental Health Awareness Week, what, what do you think that does for, for everyone? It, it raises the awareness, but also there are 51 other weeks in the year as well to look after ourselves and look out for each other, which I think racing does particularly well. It really does. I know that we're all going through difficult periods of our life at the moment, but in terms of community and looking out for each other, I still think racing does it as well as anything I've seen in my life. And I work, I'm very lucky to work in elite sport across, across every, every discipline, really. And honestly, racing does it as well as ever because it's demanding, it's relentless, it's tiring. Uh, and also it's very judgmental because the results are watched and published and poured over seven days a week. So it's a very demanding industry, but it does look out for its own very well. Earlier this week, we saw an article in the Racing Post talking about the challenges that jockeys face in, in particular and how perhaps the challenges that they face lead them to maybe a battle with alcohol. There are other, obviously, uh, vices that they can, can get involved with, which we know have been well documented over a period of time. But it's not just the jockeys. Absolutely not. I mean, they're the ones you see at the forefront. But... Uh trainers we've got Richard Hughes in this morning that's an incredibly demanding lifestyle I work a lot in football and I've always thought two of the most difficult jobs are football management and training racehorse because so much is out of your control so much because you can do everything right and still get beaten then of course I live in Lambourne with, with Paisley here and the hours and demands placed on stable staff are huge because friends of mine this week were leading up in the 840 at Newmarket and getting back at one in the morning and back into work before they even had time to barely change their clothes so it is relentless and it's not just as you say the, the stars of the show it's everywhere across the industry and we have to look out for each other that's our responsibility and I, st I will stress again I think racing in its communities does it does it really well. One thing that did strike me in that article was the issue that uh, jockeys seemed according to the charity or the people that worked with the Tony Adams Sporting Chance, Sporting Chance um, they were saying that across all the sports it was jockeys who were the mo or utilised that, that particular uh, body more than any other sport. Did that surprise you at all, or was that something that... It, you it, didn't, it didn't surprise me at all. Uh, 
I think, if I can recall, I, when Sporting Chance was opened in, in 23 years ago by, by Tony Adams, who probably wrote the most defining book on addiction, which was uh, with, with, with Ian Ridley, called, um, called Addicted. He's now gone the full lot called Sober. And Tony uh, launched the charity Sporting Chance from a cottage in, in, in Wiltshire. Mm. Little did he know, anyone else know, that 23 years later, it is the most, one of the most important charities for addiction across the country, but particularly in sport, hence called Sporting Chance. And I remember referring a jockey to there 23 years ago because it was clear he had addiction issues then. Uh, and if anything, um, if you look back at the last 20 years of horse racing, its development, the amount of racing, when we race, how we race, uh, it doesn't surprise me that, and, and with jockeys changing too, we know they're tall, we know they're heavier. It doesn't surprise me that, that they still need further support outside of the racing industry itself. It mm. doesn't surprise me one bit. How hard was it when you were in charge of the PGA, you played your role with the PGA, and even after, you know, how hard was it to, to allow or to be in the environment where you felt jockeys felt comfortable in coming forward with issues, speaking amongst each other, and, and, and dealing with that? Uh, or, or was it always the case of it was... It was different because times have changed, mainly for the better. Although I will stress that not everything we did used to fail uh, back, in, back in different days. Not everything we did failed because life is now so fast. You're there with your tablet and your iPhone and it's relentless. So we had more time uh, 25, 30 years ago. But I also knew the jockeys were under great, were under great pressure then. And you've got Peter Scudamore on. He, he changed my life with one phone call, which was asking me to go and work for the PGA in, in 1988. We tried to do an awful lot then with not a lot of money and probably not enough knowledge. Mm. Um, and the reason I'm doing this job now as a sports psychologist is because A.P. McCoy one day said, you should become a psychologist. I'd pay to see you, which I'd surprised me. And that, so those two conversations literally changed my life. One was Skew saying, come and work for the PGA. And the second one was A.P. saying, you should become a psychologist. So I said, why? He said, because you're the only one he thinks who gets our madness. Uh, because it's a mad job, if you think about it, but being a flat jockey or a jump jockey or mm. sometimes even working racing, the hours are mad. So um, that's how I got into this, th this line of work, because it is relentlessly demanding and it doesn't get any easier because life gets faster and not slower. And I, still rec I, had, I was so lucky to catch the tail end of the careers of the likes of, of Willie Carson and get to know the likes of Joe Mercer. Uh, and again, in those days, Goodwood was a, almost not a week off, but you could relax at Goodwood because you'd start on Tuesday, come back on a Saturday. Those days are, are, are long gone, so everything has changed, but not everything we did used to fail. Not everything, uh, but there are so many more challenges now than uh, we've had previously. We've spoken a bit about the jockeys, um, the trainers. At the moment, getting trainers, there is the opportunity or there are opportunities for trainers to talk now. You're talking, telling me uh, before we, we came on the show this morning about you know, the opportunity for trainers to come and talk in, in Lambourne. There is because um, I must mention Harry Dunlop, who I didn't know until Christmas of, of what, a few months ago. Uh, and we got chatting in Lambourne because he lives in the village. He'd given up training. And we got chatting one day. And he then said, when he worked for Sir Henry Cecil in, in Newmarket, they had a... Uh, a vicar, a chaplain. Mm. Uh, I must stress, I'm not a man of the cloth, so I'm not trying to be a vicar here. And he said that Sir Henry and other trainers found it really helpful that the vicar would just be in the town, bump into trainers, and they would offload a few worries and issues. And one conversation led to another, and he rang the NTF because he's, I think Harry is a, is a very fine person to speak up now, now that he no, no longer holds the training licence. 
Uh, and he said, this could help Lamble. And I said, yeah. how? He said, well, you've got a nice dog. You, you live in the village. You bump into people. And so we've just launched this very informal pilot scheme whereby if anyone is just wants to offload something, have a few moments, everyone can get your phone number now. That takes three seconds, and I live in the village. You just bump into me, or, and you say, have you got ten minutes? And when I hear that, I know that's an hour gone because they'll want to talk about something. Um, and we're hoping that people just come forward in their own time. Yeah. And if they don't, they don't, but I think they will. Uh, in fact, one has already, and they just say, have you got a minute? Which ca- became an hour. Uh, and tell me, is that because when they come to talk to you about something that might be bugging them, mm. that it may not be the, the thing that's bugging them that's at the heart of the issue, that it, it could be something you know, far, far more deep-seated Deeper you make a good point. This, it's not the 3.30 at Bath tomorrow. Exactly. And does my horse need to go left-handed or right-handed? Yeah. And I, by the way, I wouldn't know the answer anyway. But there's something else in there. And if you talk it through openly and privately, of course, eventually I think a lot of people can sort their own problems out if, mm. they, if they talk it out through loudly uh, without just sitting in your own room in isolation, which we're all capable of doing. Is we're, we are all capable of retreating. Yeah. COVID showed that on on a global scale, you can just retreat into your own bunker, and that's mm. the wrong thing to do. And just by starting a conversation, literally starting a conversation, it may may well take you to a fantastic conclusion if you carry it on. So that step one is is literally talking and meeting with someone, and we do it in all walks of life. But I think I've learned through my career in life that the informal conversations, Rishi, are sometimes far more important and life-changing than the formal structured conversation, particularly in meetings where there's people watching you. So I'm huge in informality, on, and which leads people to talk and just open up a bit more. Are informal conversations easier to have than booking an appointment to go and see someone? The cynicism that's out there um, allows people to feel like they're being judged when yeah. they say or even think almost that they want to reach out because they may have an issue. Because... There is, there, is, there is so much stigma attached still. There is, all this let, time. let's be honest, there is. And even you know, 2023, with the end of Mental Health Awareness Week, the stigma attached to it is, is still extraordinary. And I think I said to a colleague of yours this week, if, if in 20 years' time we're on this same sofa, we'd nearly be having the same conversation about stigma because it, it will always be there to a degree. It's not about anything else, but on this topic, there is. And if just by little centimetre by centimetre we can break that down. I think we're doing everyone a huge service. Welcome back to Luck on Sunday. Obviously Paisley still here and he's got an even better position now. Uh, Alongside me Richard Hughes and Chloe Martin have joined Michael, myself and Paisley. Um, Chloe I'll come to you in just a moment. Very powerful advert that we just saw there courtesy of Racing Welfare but but Hughes you were listening to what Michael had to say um, you were in the paper earlier this week talking about the challenges that you faced when you rode and the amazing stories you told about <laughs> the way jockeys conducted themselves and that was seen as relatively normal. Yeah, really normal um, back in the day, but um, it has changed now for the better, which is good for young people coming into the sport. But um, I don't regret anything, if you know what I mean. Mm. I've been there, done it, and hopefully my experiences can help someone else. Well, hopefully, yeah, they have. And even the fact that you've spoken in the paper will hopefully have helped encourage one or two others. Chloe, just a brief word with you to kick things off. I mean, that was a very powerful advert that we just watched here. Um, 
it's a it's a it's a story that obviously is very dramatic when we watch the advert, but it's one that we know takes place quite regularly in the sport. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, we wanted to do something a little bit different with the film this year. Um, we we've put out these films of Equine Productions for the last few years as we support Mental Health Awareness Week um, year on year, and and we we just wanted to um, make sure that we'd got. Um, our leaders at the forefront of the conversation about mental health as well. I think a lot of people might uh, think of race and welfare and think of us as a charity that supports the the staff working in the yards, but actually everybody has mental health and everybody can be affected from time to time. And so that was that's why it was so important to 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 get um, a trainer mm. as the sort of lead this year. Richard, you heard. Uh, talking about what Michael was saying earlier on about talking and connecting and speaking to people. Um, do you think it's, there were enough people to speak to? Do you think it was easy to connect when you were riding? And is it easier now, do you think? Um, I say it's easier now, there's no doubt. Um, I was very lucky that Johnny Murt had gone through the same experience as me. So, and he was successful when he, when he got better. Um, so I had a crutch to lean on. It would have been very easy for me to say, you know, I don't eat it. And I'm a sportsman, it's different for me. So What would happen if Johnny hadn't reached that? I don't know. That's, yeah, don't know. Not that we often should spend time thinking about what ifs. But well, it'd be probably three months over and then blast out and then three months again and blast and get more trouble. But so um, I was very lucky, very just, lucky. Just remind people about, you know, you said, for example, you... You went out on the Monday night before Royal Ascot years ago till two o'clock in the morning, but you know, you, you rode winners. Yeah, it was normal. Um, I was lucky I had a bit of talent along the way. Um, Three-time champion jockey, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, should have been more if I was put myself properly from the very start. I've no doubt about that. Um, I remember that Windsor night, Richard used to always, Hannon used to always organise view to win on the Monday before Ascot. Everyone would be over ready for Ascot. And we had a few winners in Windsor that night, and off we went and had great fun <laughs> at the time. Um, got in at two in the morning, went and rode the first three winners of Royal Ascot. I thought it was invincible. Goodness yeah. me. But then after a while, that guilt starts eating away at you if they only knew what I was up to. And they'd be patting you on the back, and you lose that enjoyment if they only knew. You're only getting away with it. You're not enjoying it. And how... Oh, Paisley, take mm -hmm. it easy, chap. Um, <coughs> do you want to come back up on the sofa? Let's help you up. Come on. <laughs> You're going to end up presenting the show in a minute. <laughs> um, and, and how did you end up getting out of the rut? You said Johnny reached out to you, but it, it requires quite a lot of self-commitment to get out of the rut. Well, a, a good willpower anyway, because I knew that. Um, I'm ten and a half stone now, and I used to be going around eight, seven. So the willpower was there, but it was how to go about it and but channel it in the right direction. Um, and con continuous talking every week going to AA and having Johnny there for the odd phone call when things were going bad, you know. So I got yeah. through it. Yeah. Um, anyone can do it. It's not. It's hard at the start. You think you're you're never going to do it. And if, the, if I had to thought of never drinking again, would have been horrendous. Wow. You know, all I had to think was don't drink today. And that made it easier. My goodness, my goodness. 18 years on him. Still not drinking today, so it helps. Well, I, I'm not sure if this is where we say well done. I mean, <laughs> I, I genuinely, I, and I say that because I, I don't know how you, 
Uh, it's not something that I would have, uh, have to understand or cope with. I was lucky. I had a great family around me, don't get me wrong. Very lucky. Some, some guys are on their own. So I had a great network of support around me. And the fact that I started to do better with, with my riding, mm. that's a big plus too. If I was starting to do worse, yeah. th then you come to a crossroads. I was riding better when I was drinking. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I was always very lucky. Richard said that one day, you know, one, because addicts, you know, it's today I'm clean. But that, that one day at a time thing keeps mm. coming back. Yeah. I mean, we've, there's so much knowledge now and so much information. But when Richard said there, just today, yeah. and sometimes you, we, we look so far forward, it's overwhelming. And he just said, yep, today. And that's yeah. what AA. And I was actually speaking to an athlete yesterday from another sport who's been through a different addiction to Richard. And he was saying exactly the same thing. He still reaches out to his sponsor. Uh, he still goes to meetings and yeah. for a different addiction. And it, and it still helps him. To yeah. And he's performing at the highest level. The very highest level still, yeah. uh, but it's one day at a time because if you look too far forward, it becomes far too overwhelming. Yeah, I remember I was, I think it was about six months sober, and I had to be a best man at my best friend's wedding. Yeah. So I rang Johnny and said, how am I going to cope with this? This was in three months' time. He said, oh. well, you fool, he said, you could be dead tomorrow. What are you worrying about next week for? <laughs> <laughs> and just brought it all back to perspective, you know? Yeah. Wow. And you live day at a time, makes it much, so much easier. And Chloe, do you feel that people reach out to racing welfare enough? Should they be reaching out more? Are racing welfare reaching out to people enough? I mean, how, how do you see that particular picture in the sport of racing? Um, well, this is why weeks like Mental Health Awareness Week, which we're just coming to the end of now, are really important for us um, as a springboard to keep that conversation in the forefront of people's minds. And I know, obviously, Michael's already said, you know, it's not just about one week, it's about um, the whole 52 weeks of the year that we have to keep this conversation going. But weeks like this where we can really um, focus on these conversations and, you know, conversations like this today and, um, and those that have been happening across the media mm. this week really help people to actually focus in and think, um, you know, take, take a minute to think about their own mental health um, and to have that courage as well to come forward and to talk about it. Um, as we've already said, there's, there's so much stigma around the, um, the talking about mental health and actually we all have mental health just as we all have physical health and mental health doesn't necessarily mean by talking about it that there's a mental health issue we just have mm. to um, we just all have to be aware of our mental health and the um, uh, our own thresholds and, and what we can what we can manage and the t and have our tools in place for when that load can get too heavy sometimes yeah well I mean uh, Richard would probably know better than, than all of us because we all, we all talk about the challenges that racing people face. Obviously, you were a jockey. Now you're a trainer. You're responsible for other people. People work for you. When do you have time to think about how well you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I was watching that um, video clip there on the telly, and I hadn't seen it before. I think they were meeting up about me. But <laughs> genuinely, <laughs> I watched it. it like. That it could be spooky. so many trainers. It was spooky how close to the bone mm -hmm. that is. It really is. Um, we had a sticky month last month and I was coming over from race and should have had a winner, a bit unlucky. And then my head lad just texts, hard luck today, I hope you're okay. Unbelievable. Makes a difference. There you go. Uh, yeah. And just going back to what you were okay. saying, Michael, connecting. 
Mm. Even if you don't even think that somebody's going to really benefit from it or whatever, just send it. Mm. Just, just, just reach out. Yeah? So, sometimes I think we're very nervous to say, I'll, I'll get in touch because they've had such a bad day. And you think, I'll leave them alone for tonight, tomorrow, and the next day. Actually, yeah. it's the other way around. Just, just let them know that you're thinking of them because to pick up what Chloe said about mental health, it's a big two words, mental health. We all have times of our life, all of us, every, everyone watching this morning, we have times when it, life doesn't treat us well. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we've got a mental health issue. That's mm. a big difference there, because in my family there's some terrible mental health issues. And it's, it's generally awful, it's crippling. But there's times in our life, you go a month without a winner in racing, and that's, you think everyone is judging you because you haven't had a winner for 46 runners in 32 days, or whatever it might be. We're just having a, a tough time, uh, which is different to being crippling mental health illness and racing will I think of all the sports I've been involved in it it's the Mick Shannon Jr. line in his brilliant book How's Your Dad and it's the best line I've heard about racing and I use it all the time so I use it again today it's a losing sport because even when Richard was riding at the peak of his powers as a three times champion jockey that was still a 24% 25% strike rate if I remember when you were at your peak that's yeah. a lot of losers still yeah. and that's when you're at your peak so it is a losing sport and just to people to show that you're actually are looking out for them, because anyone can send a message or say well done after a, a treble at Royal Ascot. But after 42 days without a winner, that's when they need to, how are we getting on? Welcome back to Luck on Sunday. Richard Hughes still with us on the sofa, but delighted to welcome Maddie Playle of the Racing Post. Uh, Maddie, we were just actually just talking a few moments ago. You've been on, on your travels a little bit, and, and <laughs> you were in Dubai earlier in the year. Uh, anywhere else exotic? Uh, for my mum's birthday, we went to Italy with the family. That was quite nice. Very so, nice. Uh, Which part of Italy? Yeah, uh, just not far from Pompeii. Lovely. Um, so, yeah, that was good, but... Uh, Back, back in Blighty now. Excellent. I must admit, I'm, I'm kind of sad that I've come back in. There's no longer a dog here. I, I thought that was part of the parcel of, of coming on today. To be, <laughs> it seems to be he's taken over the show. I mean, who needs Nick Luck <laughs> when you've got Paisley, right? Um, I would like to have a look back at York, if we can. Um, so much good racing. Probably one of the best meetings of the year so far uh, on the flat, I'd have to say. Um, should we start with the Musidora? Um, and I'll, I'll let you start here, Maddie. This was quite a... <laughs> Quite an impressive performance visually from Soul Sister. Yeah, really. Uh, the one thing that stuck out for me was how surprised Connection seemed to be afterwards. It's not often you'd get a John Gosden, uh, John and Daly Gosden trained horse, Frankie Dettori up, uh, winning at this sort of price in an Oaks trial, and they seemed pretty shocked as well. Um, yeah, an interesting race. I thought Infinite Cosmos, she got largely the run of the race on the front end, but Soul Sister just flew on by and after being disappointing on a, a seasonal reappearance when she got stuck in the mud she clearly liked this quicker surface um i mean speed is clearly you know that turn of foot she showed there is clearly one of her strong points um and she was duly trimmed uh, into about three to one for the the oaks after this um and again frankel power isn't it we're mm. seeing him just come to the fore again and again and as a sire um but I do think the, the test she'll face at Epsom will be quite different to this, so it'd be good to see how she gets on there. Hughesy, what were your impressions of what she did? Yeah, I was quite shocked how, how well she won. And you could Any race when you spot the winner three and a half furlongs from home, they look a class above. Um, and Frankie's back at it again. He's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> extraordinary. He, he could end up winning the Guineas, the Derby... The Oaks. Probably will know that jammy game. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it is. I mean, to be fair, his his story has obviously he's had his, his tough moments, but primarily a fairy tale, and now he's ended mm. up on on Soul mm. Sister, who 
I mean, how do you think she fits into the Oaks picture? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We've only had a couple of fillies really come out and state their claim for the Oaks, haven't we? I'm a big Save the Last Dance fan. Um, at Chester, I was blown about, away by what she did. Yeah. Um, I know you can probably criticise the form of that, but um, just the way she looked physically beforehand and the way she just accelerated yeah. on that ground and kept accelerating. Um, she's proved she can handle a, a turning track. Uh, maybe Soul Sister still has that to prove, yeah. but... Um, I'm on her side, uh, but yeah, the, they're the two fillies at the moment who have really took that big leap forward. Yeah. Um, and again, this was a big step up in trip for Soul Sister, so an extra uh, one and a half, what is it, two furlongs at, at Epsom. Mm. Um, should suit her. Okay, I'm going to have a look back at a race. I think you would enjoy have been being Paul Mulrennan, uh, <laughs> Husey, because he, he was sat travelling like a Richard Hughes travelling thing, as they would say. Um, there she is with the noseband and the, the pink sleeves. Um, she looked terrific. Okay, she was getting weight from Highfield Princess, who put in an excellent return run. But this filly might be something out of the top draw. Michael Dodd certainly believes so, Richard. Yeah, and Paul is riding really good at the moment. Um, underrated. When he gets the very limited opportunities on some of these good sprinters, he just keeps delivering. Mm. Good lad. Um, I think he's way over underrated. But uh, great performance again by the, by the filly. Yeah. Just in a moment, she comes and she sits just here. This is where I thought this would be like you. <laughs> Best feeling in the world, that. <laughs> you can't buy that when you know you're going to win. And you're absolutely cruising. It's just the best feeling. And Maddie, there's a lot to take out of this race. I, I, I mentioned Highfield Princess, but your thoughts on Azure Blue? Yeah, I thought she was brilliant. Um, Highfield Princess came into I think this race is going to be informative with regards to the rest of the season. You see Marshman there on the far mm. side as well. Things didn't quite go his way. I thought the astrologist and the Aussie horse ran pretty well considering. Um, but it's your blue for, for Michael Dodds. Just keeps improving, and that's what he does with these sprinters. You know, Mecca's Angel, Mab's Cross. Uh, you can name even more of them. So... Um, it's just a nice story to get behind and she still looks like she's got more room for improvement left in her which is quite scary but I guess connections of Highfield Princess would have been delighted with that and they'll they'll probably be thinking yeah we'll try and reverse the form yeah the the physical scope she still has is quite extraordinary looking in the paddock I mean connections were over the moon and then when I was chatting to Michael Dodds after the race that's what he kept pointing out to me because I was saying well you know Highfield Princess was giving you weight and mm. it's a first run etc he's saying just look at this filly she's going to keep improving look at her side she's so strong so exciting times for her and as uh, as Maddie says you know Mecca's Angel Eastern Angel Mab's Cross the list is long and distinguished mm. with good good young horses good sprinters um, let's talk about the Dante now Maddie. Everyone thought going into the race we were likely to see one of the better candidates for the derby. Was it the Foxes for you? Um, perhaps not. And that's not to take away from what he achieved. Uh, you only have to look at this race two furlongs out to see the horses spread across the Knavesmire to say kind of a bit of a muddling finish. Um, I must admit I was on passenger and I was cursing my luck yeah. um, at this stage. But look at where the Foxes is. I mean, he's had to come right round all the runners um, and showed a great attitude um, it, I think the, the form is good I mean you look at continuous white birch they're both very solid horses and they've run nice races um, but I wonder if this form would be the same if you ran the race again I'm not, not too sure um, the Foxes by Churchill a horse who's having a, a great year as a sire um, but of course that also gives you the slight doubt about his stamina um, up in trip 
but hey, Ashim Murphy, Andrew Balding are a, a, a team to be reckoned with, and uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's he's showed a great attitude there and really built on uh, on his reappearance in the Cravens. So it, it's a fascinating race to read, um, yeah. and I'd like to see what what the horses in behind can do. Yeah, they are zipping along, uh, Andrew Balding and Ashim Murphy. They've got a big runner in Italy today, uh, Relentless Voyager. Usually, um, just having a look at, at Paul Richard Kingscote, you were talking about it's the best feeling in the world. Well, he was travelling like the best horse in the race, but when you're travelling well and you can't get a run, it's not the best feeling then, is it? No, um, he was a little bit unlucky. He went left, right, left. I think what, in the back of his mind that he didn't want to frighten the horse having his second run of his life, go in there and then pull the head off him. Mm. Um, if it was a handicap, you kick in and hope for the best, and whatever happens, happens. But he was, I think he was very mindful not for this horse to get a big fright a month before the derby. Mm. And if you look after the interference, the amount of ground he made up on continuous to, to share the dead heat in third mm. um, was, was still, you know, for a horse who's only won and Wood didn't, hadn't yeah. raced at two, it was a big effort. Um, he'll come forward for it, no doubt, if they decide to supplement him. Um, 85 grand, it's not, not cheap. Um, uh, he was probably the fastest horse in the race. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know if he'd say. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk more yeah. about the derby. I thought it was... Um, Richard Kingscote to come forward and say, oh, it's yeah. my fault. I thought that was almost, I, I didn't necessarily think it was his fault. I think it was just one of those things. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk more about the derby a little bit later on in Talking Points. Uh, but what about the Yorkshire Cup, Richard? Giovalotto kind of caught everybody by surprise. But actually, when you look back through his form from last year, he wasn't that far away. I mean, Elder Elderov obviously beat him in the ledger. Um, what did you make of it? Yeah, I th thought that was good, strong form, you know. Um, these horses improved from three to four. He's probably improved more than any other horse. Good, solid performance and great Marco body back in the big time. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the story of, of, of the race, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and great for, for them. And, and they've managed this horse's career really well. Obviously, took him off to Dubai. It didn't quite happen there. Um, and I think this, this race just shows how you need everything to fall right on the day um, because a lot of these horses, you know, Elder Elderov, for instance, won the St. Ledger. Um, it was a race I wasn't sure how the form was going to work out, but with Haskoy winning uh, yesterday mm. as well, it, it looks really strong form. Um, I think a few of those in here would have been suited by a bit more of an honest gallop and interesting that Marco Botti said afterwards, we're not sure Ascot would be his track. He needs a big galloping track. Um, but yeah, he's clearly a, a horse with a, a fair share of talent. Yeah, Marco Botti has said that. He said no Ascot. He said he ran once at Ascot last year. It wasn't his finest hour. Uh, and the Melbourne Cup would be the target for him, Richard, and that's kind of where they want to go. But t looking at that race, if you were looking for a horse out of that race, would you say Elder Elderov had run a good trial for the, the Gold Cup at Ascot? Well, he looked to stay really well, two and a half mile. Well, I don't know, I think it's... What, what's that, that, that bridge like? I mean, that was a mile six there. Yeah, your... two mile, two mile two. Once you start passing that, you go into no man's land for sure. and You've got to have a real backbone pedigree that knows you're going to stay. What are your thoughts on how the Gold Cup might play out, Maddie? Yeah, I mean, it's an open race this year, isn't it? Emily Dickinson, who was one of the key players, she was slightly disappointing on her reappearance. Um, Coltrane's the one who's really stepped forward mm. because Trushan's lost his form a little bit. So it's definitely worth a go. And I like it when these races are open. You know, it gives you something to really get your teeth stuck into. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a couple from the Rogervarian yard are really coming on for their first run. So mm. I'd expect a big improved performance from Elder Elder of next time. Yeah, well, we are now privileged on the show uh, this morning. We have got the champion jockey joining us on the show, uh, William Buick. 
as we look back on the first Group 1 of the season uh, for older horses, uh, the Lockinge at Newbury. And William Buick is going to help us talk through the race. Hi, Will. Hi, Richie. Um, from the gates, happy with where Modern Games was? Yeah, I was, I was happy all throughout. I mean, you know, you look at the race beforehand and sort of a lot of the, a lot of the pace horses were, were drawn low and I was sort of on the wing in 13. So you are always worried of, of getting stuck a bit and uh, stuck a bit out there and get, getting a bit isolated. But we sort of, the, the pace was, was good, good where I was and it was good throughout. So, yeah, really, I suppose it, it couldn't have really worked that much better for, for modern games yesterday. Now, tell me something about him, Will, because even when he won the, the Breeders' Cup turf, uh, the, 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 the juvenile turf, and then obviously the mile last year, he just takes a couple of strides before he hits top gear, because there was one moment, I think about two and a half out, where you were coming off the bridle, and I was just getting a little bit panicky, but then I remembered those races, and I thought, actually, once you get into him, he really responds. Yeah, no, he, do, he does, he does. Um, you, you, you're never really worried, because he's always, he's always there for you, you know, you... Um, and you know he, he responds very well to pressure and yeah look he's uh, you, you're not as anxious at Newbury as you might be around a mile around Keeneland you have a bit more time at Newbury so um, no, he, he picked up well and yeah, like as you can see when, when I asked him he was he then really hit top gear and and he's, he, he shows his speed uh, the recognition he's getting, obviously, is something we'll talk about in just a moment. But there was a, a, a worrying moment for you. And you, I, I believe the runner-up drew blood on the hands of the champion jockey. Um, yeah, I, it really wasn't as bad as what maybe it was, uh, it was um, made out to be. But, um, yeah, he, he did, um, Chinda did catch my hand. <laughs> um, me and Dobbs, who were having a laugh about it afterwards. And it was just one of those things. No one got hurt. And it was... a. Uh, you know, it just shows you how competitive these racehorses are. You know, um, obviously, you know, Chindit is a is a tough season performer, and and uh, yeah, he he didn't want to he didn't want to go down without a fight. Well, we just saw the scar there briefly. Well, I tell you what, that's a, a few days off for me yeah. if I had something that serious. <laughs> um, tell me about modern games and and where you think he will rank in Britain in Europe this season as a top class miler, because. I, I'm not sure people quite appreciate him as much as he deserves to be appreciated just yet. Maybe they will after yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was delighted for for the horse yesterday. You know, he really deserved it. And you sort of, he, he's that was his fifth group group or grade one yesterday, and and um, you kind of, well, I, I certainly sort of forgot that he hasn't that that was his first group one in the UK um, yesterday. Um, obviously, he ran ran so well behind Baid in the Sussex Stakes last year, um, and uh, yeah, he's he's a classic winner, um, you know, two-time Breeders' Cup winner. So he's 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 very very good. He's a top-class miler, and I think all those, you know, Queen Anne, Sussex, and then hopefully a, a trip back to America for another an, another another go at the Breeders' Cup mile would be great. But you know, some of those races are a long way away, so time will tell. But um, I suppose all those top-class mile races around will be will be firmly on the radar for him, for sure. I'm just going to throw it out there, and I know you'll probably say, I'll leave this up to Charlie and the team. Or you may even say, this is ridiculous, he'll stay at a mile. But think he might get 10? Well, he, he, ran, he ran the French Derby, and he ran very well. He was third. He should have definitely been second. We were drawn out wide, and yeah. 
and that day, you know, I rode him as as he would stay him on the course, and probably just like through circumstances and with the draw and everything, he just lost that for second, and you know, Badini beat him, so um, that probably was a good addition of of of, of the of, of the race. Um, look, he's so good at a mile. I, I see no reason to change things, to be honest. All right, well, um, a brief word about military order, if you don't mind, and how excited you would be to ride him in the derby? Yeah, um, he's, he's done absolutely nothing wrong, and I was, I was delighted with him at Lingfield. Obviously, he was changed from turf to the, the poly track, um, but in, in many ways, you know, they, they, learn, they learn just as much around there as they would on, on the grass track, and I suppose um, for those horses, that's what you're looking for, just to gain that little bit of experience um, and and just to get them get them in the thick of it in the race and sort of you know on the old weather day that that turn is sharp and it's downhill and I mean it's not like Epsom but but they have to be they have to be well balanced and and he was he was well balanced he picked up when I asked him and um, I, I like the way he finished his race off so I couldn't have been happier with him and I'm certainly looking forward to him ahead of Epsom, for sure. Well, can you imagine if you stopped Frankie winning the derby on his last ride? Wow, well, that would be something else. Now, I know we're in the middle of a flat season, but... We're very excited to have uh, the stars of the National Hunt season, Lucinda Russell and Peter Scudamore, joining us to talk about what I said at the start of the show, ambitious plans for the future. Things have gone so well uh, in the recent season. Hi, Lucinda. Hi, Peter. Hello. Good morning, Richie. How are you guys? Have you ever seen us look so relaxed? And have you ever seen us... Uh, in well, the sun. In the sun, actually, yeah. And coordinated as well, colour-wise. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see your legs. <laughs> now, we, we read in the Racing Post earlier this week, um, very ambitious, significant plans, bringing the family together, Tom and Michael joining into the team. So what's the thinking behind this? And how long has it been uh, in the offing? Well, as you said, we've had the most amazing season last year and we've got uh, some lovely horses. Everything's getting better and getting better. And we've done it before. We've been here before where we sort of expanded too quickly and put all the staff under pressure. So we decided to insulate against that to bring uh, really good good staff on board. And we thought we turned to the family. And, and that's what we've done is to combine forces with Michael. Um, we, we are getting bigger, but we wanted to do it with the best people. So we've got the best staff. And I think Michael's bringing up some fantastic horses as well. Uh, obviously, we know that a lot of us in, in the sport know of the achievements of Michael, obviously with his, his big race wins himself. We know about what Tom has done in the saddle. What do you think they're both going to bring individually to what you already have? Well, I think that we know our own individual strengths. Um, unfortunately for me, I sat with a, sit with a very intelligent lady. The only reason we move forward is that we have an intelligent lady and she always asks people, you know, what is your role? What can you... Well, it's the head lad, it's Cameron Wodge or Jamie Duff, the travelling head girl. We say to you, what is your role? What do you think your strengths are? So she said to Michael, what is, uh, what are your strengths? And he believes that uh, he can help us with the training. Um, I can continue to ride. Lucinda can continue to go to the sale catalogues all the time. She's running the yard. Um, it, it, it's very difficult. You know, any trainer will know. You've got Richard 
set there. I remember um, the late Jake, great Julian Wilson saying to me that, you know, to be a trainer, you need to be good at about 17 different things. <laughs> and obviously now all these trainer operations are getting bigger and bigger. So you can't do 17 different things yourself. You need to bring in people that you trust that they can push forward with and, and, and do the things that they're, they're strong at. It's team. The team word, you know, I was, I'm not as intelligent as the syndrome that keeps saying, I say it's no use having the prop play and fly half, you know. That's the only <laughs> way I can equate it. And by bringing Michael and Tom in, um, the yard down in, well, we are actually sat down there now in Eccles Hall. Um, I think it, that can go three ways. Um, Lucinda's nephew might come in, a chap called Ollie Russell, who's worked for Dan Skelton at the moment. He's been with Goldolphin and Coolmore. He might run more of a stud side. Thomas will do the pre-training side. We've got a couple of owners who want some horses pre-trained and we can use it as a satellite yard as well. So look, I know they're hugely ambitious plans, but all of you will know out there watching that most of the major training operations now are family-run businesses and we're copying that, if you like. And what's, what's the, the, the focus on? Is it just a bigger team, better horses? Do you, do you want to win the Trainers' Championship? How high do you want to climb? I don't think it's about uh, winning the Trainers' Championship. Of course, we'd love to, but um, it's really about maintaining the level that we've got to. You know, we, we won some really nice races. We're, we're looking not just at black type races, but the grade ones and, and the national uh, winning the, the bigger races and, and just having better horses. And, and we've got to have the, the infrastructure there to be able to train them to the best level. And that's that's what we're looking to do. Um, I suppose it can't really be about numbers because we're going to have to do this halfway through the season. So we're going to lose the winners that we've had already. But but it's just about bringing the quality up and, and continuing the, the upward trend and, and just maintaining what we've got. And obviously, the star of the whole operation, as, as lovely as you two both are, is Korak Rambler. How is Korak Rambler? Um, and where is he now? He's, at a, he's with Kenny Alexander, and he is... Um, we see him regularly. Um, you know, it's funny with all this fuss going on, on about horses, welfare and stuff, you know, I, I worry about him every day, sat in the field. So, um, look, I just hope he's been absolutely wonderful to us as the two Grand National winners have. I couldn't quite believe that they've taken us to the level that, that they have. Um, as I say, he's so he's in the field. He's very happy in the middle of, uh, we're not quite in June yet, are we? In the middle of June, he'll, he'll come back in and I don't know what he'll do. He's done everything for us. So just hope he... Runs in some nice races. He owes nobody, you know, with the same old cliche, he owes nobody nothing. And uh, I'm just so proud and so privileged to, have, uh, to, to be able to touch him. Well, there, there was so, many, so much goodwill for, for you both uh, on the day. None more so than from Tom, who was part of Racing TV. I think one of his early broadcasts on the media side of things. And he was very excited. I mean, I don't know why he was so animated the race was won from about a mile out there was only one horse going well but it was wonderful to see that emotion uh from 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 young tom i'm now wondering what the plan would be for korak rambler when he i'm still baffled by tom's animation here by the way i'm looking at it it's extraordinary there are two things there it wasn't just tom i have the most beautiful photograph of the young lady who led him up laurie walsh and jamie duff um 
cuddling each other uh, and her sister, the three of them cuddling each other, just the emotion. And that, that's what it's all about, whether it's flat racing or um, jumping. You know, I know money is important, but I do think the joy that these horses bring us um, rises above that at, 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 at some stages. I've forgotten. The, I was so intimated about <laughs> getting that across. I forgot the second part of the question. You asked <laughs> just, it's just the emotion that Tom has. But it, it is emotion. It means so much. And, and it's great because Tom's going to be part of it with us now. So, um, I mean, he already is part of it, really. But uh, it'll be lovely. And with him and his, his uh, daughters, you know, Margot, Myrtle, and I suppose at some stage, Ava, um, for them to be part of it as well. It's, you know... Horse racing horses, it, it's part of the soul. And uh, by bringing the family together, that's that's what we're trying to trying to keep keep going. Well, I have to say, it's a very relaxed setting that you uh, seem to be in at the moment. I'm rather jealous of the sunshine and how lovely it is there. And the, the birds tweeting in the background. It, it, it looks as if life with Lucinda and Peter is going to be a joy. Um, and we certainly wish you all the very best of luck for the future. Um, and when Tom and Michael become part of the team, onwards and upwards. Thank you very much. And thanks to Nikki and, and Ali for providing the backdrop. It's their house and their flowers. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not my garden. <laughs> Nikki and Ali have a lovely backdrop. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the studio here for Luck on Sunday. Uh, we are welcoming into the studio Martin Smith, who earlier this week announced that uh, he was bringing an end to his training career, perhaps temporarily. We're not entirely certain, um, Martin. But just run us through the sequence of events that have led to this decision that you've taken. You've had your licence for, what, decade? Yeah, 10 years in England. I did have a brief stint as a trainer in Florida almost 20 years ago now but yeah I've had a, I've had a great 10 years in England and up until the last 12 months I've just about managed to make enough money to pay myself a wage and and keep everything afloat but since the economy's changed in the last 12 months it's just gotten harder and harder to keep things going so I've just you know it's gotten to a point where the end was probably inevitable so it was just a question of when when do you take that step to to say enough's enough basically if we deal with the numbers uh, you had a yard that uh, housed up to 30, is that right? Yeah. But how many horses did you have in? I had 17 horses in my care, but only six of those were, well, six or eight of those were running and in training. Imagine, just explain for people at home how challenging that is on the mind as much as anything else. <laughs> it's funny, yes. I mean, it's, it's a very stressful thing for, for any trainer. To be a trainer is, you know, a lot of stress. As Peter Scudamore was just saying, it's amazing what you have to be able to do i mean i grew up in racing learned to ride horses it's so all dad's I've done all training my life. in bahrain dad learning. trains in bahrain <clears throat> i grew up in belgium started as an apprentice there and i've always ridden horses and you know i got good at that over the years but since i started training i had to take on so many other things from things like business management to social media marketing and stuff like that just stuff i knew nothing about but had to learn along the way and it's amazing how much you, you have to take on your plate that you just wouldn't imagine until you've actually done it and put yourself in that position. So, so what were the things that were, were wearing you down? Was it simply the fact that things had got too expensive, uh, that the costs meant that this was no longer viable? Was it uh, that, or were there other factors that were involved in it? There was a lot of things that are difficult about the job. Probably for the last three or four years, especially the staffing has gotten more difficult. But the... Basically, the final straw, yeah, was the rising costs. 
and it got to a point where I could only put my costs up a certain amount before my owners would just look elsewhere to other trainers that could still afford to do it for less money than I could. So it was just the margin was getting smaller and smaller and eventually we got to the point where, you know, we just couldn't logically carry it on. Is this something that you think we're going to sadly hear more of, that the economics of trying to run a business in the sport of horse racing is just going to be too hard to manage? I think so. I, you know, the way it's gone for me, I don't think I'm the only person that's having the same struggles. So... I'm sure, you know, other people, and maybe it'll be for other reasons, but I, I think other people will be having to pack up. Or I suppose a lot of people now are joining forces, having joint licences, which may be a big help for some people. For me, there wasn't really a way I could see someone that I could join up, to do, up with to do that. But hopefully, like I said to David and Race and Post, I, I would love it if nobody else had to stop training and everybody could carry on, but unfortunately... Mm. It's probably not a realistic view. And, and when you were going through that, that tough spell, I, I imagine that you would have been making calculations in your mind every day, every other day, saying uh, bills add up, money coming in, etc. I mean, we all, we all do it. We all yeah. think about what we have to manage. But during that spell, did you have much help? Did you have support to help you through those moments? I've been lucky. I've always had a lot of support from my family, close friends, and, you know, my owners have been very supportive. We also had the racing club where we had, you know, over 100 members at one point. And even though it's only goodwill, there were a lot of people that were very supportive. And a lot of that was the reason you keep going, keep going. Mm. And then you're always obviously thinking, oh, if I just get that good horse, that will help bring in more horses. And I mean, that's probably that's more wishful thinking than anything else. But yeah, I've been lucky having a lot of support, especially yeah. from my family and, you know, no one more than my wife. She's been absolutely amazing. And in the, in the, the 10 years that you've been training uh, in Britain, what would be the moments that you will remember most fondly? Um, probably some of the small... Winning the town plate at Newmarket, that was a big day uh, for, you know, a lot of reasons. And, you know, the better horses, the bigger winners. My favourite horse, I suppose, if I had to pick one, would have been Arch My Boy. Mm. He won a few races. He won his maiden on the flat by nine lengths, and then he won his last hurdle race by about 30 lengths. And he was, he was pretty phenomenal, and we ended up selling him to America. Yeah. Um, and because he was one that I rode every day. Yeah. And the horses you spend more time with, naturally, you get more attached to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I suppose those, those good winners, and even having a winner in Guernsey, that was just the best weekend. I'd advise anyone, if you get a chance to go racing in Guernsey or Jersey, yeah. take it because it's such a good... Although it's not you know, high-profile, big races, it's so much fun. What, what's the experience like in terms of the, the race course, the crowds, etc.? Um, so the, the, if you can call it a race course, the track is basically in a square shape around the golf course. The grandstand is a grass bank. But, you know, there's, there's a beer tent there. Everyone sits on the grass with a pint, watches the racing. It's very people-friendly, family-friendly, and it's just a fantastic atmosphere. For me, I've always enjoyed, you know, the atmosphere and sort of the involvement more than yeah. trying to get to the big races and that, you know, especially being a smaller trainer, you try and aim realistically at what you can do. But, you know, just being somewhere in the moment is yeah. just... I've probably gotten more out of that than anything. I'd Everybody say. in the production gallery have just left. They've all gone to Guernsey. <laughs> um, they've, you've sold They'll it. have a great time. You've trust sold me. it beautifully. <laughs> um, we're on our own. Um, but you've also been to Royal Ascot. Yeah. Um, 
you know, that I imagine when you are a small trainer, just being at Royal Ascot, you often hear people say that, you know, just having a runner on the day yeah. is, is an achievement. Yeah, it was. And that was in my first full season as a trainer. And I suppose at the time I may have thought that, oh, I'll just keep doing this every year because it's easy to believe that while you're doing it. But, yeah, it was phenomenal. You know, we spoke on the day. Um, the horse probably didn't run as well as he could have done, but still just being at Royal Ascot with a horse that you bought out of a selling race yeah. six months previously, yeah, it was just a great experience and definitely one I'll never forget. I had two runners at the Cheltenham Festival. Yeah. Again, just exceptional. And you just... I'm lucky, I suppose, that I really made the most of it at the time. Um, but, yeah, it's just I've got a lot of great memories, and I'll take those with me. It's a, a week that we are becoming more and more recognising the importance of, of mental health. Um, and we often talk about people within the sport being challenged by both the physical demands of the sport, the emotional demands, the financial demands mm. of the sport. I mean, if there were people listening to this asking about how you've looked after your mental health during that 10-year spell holding a trainer's license. How would you describe that? I suppose because I knew before I started that I didn't have much knowledge or experience in running a business and stuff like that, I sought help from, from books, you know, what do you do to be productive, to be successful, and a lot of that is a psychological thing. So I've always sort of push forward, you know, aim for targets, try and reach goals. Mm. And just, you know, little things, even if the big goals seem far away, just pick little goals and try and keep looking ahead, I think, was was my main thing. And, you know, I think everybody experiences tough times. There's, there's no escaping that. But it's, again, and you rely on support from the people around you as much as anything. And I've just been lucky to have good people around me. Yeah. One thing I want to ask is whether or not, anyone's reached out to you from say the BHA to ask about your experience that perhaps they could benefit from in helping other people ask what the questions were that you found most challenging the things that you know you felt that you struggled with things that you felt you you think could you offer advice on to make things better has there been any no not yet I mean do you think that's something that ought to be done to anybody say you know what he was Chris Wall retired last yeah, year quick yeah. He says he My changed neighbor. jobs. <laughs> yeah, he said change yeah. jobs. I mean, obviously, there's yourself. There's a whole number of people over the last 12 months that have had to step away from the sport. Do you feel that we need to be taking information from you to ask to make things better for the future? I mean, you're I'm sure you'll be willing to do that, won't you? Yeah, absolutely. And nobody has asked, but I think it would be a good idea to ask those sort of questions because the people that, are, if you like, at the end of the journey can, you know, almost the knowledge that they have can help people that are earlier on in the journey and make, you know, maybe give people a little bit of a, a helping hand starting out and oh. stuff like that. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea. Uh, obviously, another subject that's been in the, the paper quite a bit recently has been uh, the culture in racing yards and stable staff. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, obviously, some, some pretty horrendous things come out in the press in, in recent weeks and months. Um, how would you describe the way things were conducted in your yard, and how would you advise that perhaps anybody from the BHA are listening and interested in, uh, in, in how things are done, how they're to be done? And how did you manage stuff? Um, I suppose it was easy having a small yard. There weren't that many people to try and manage, but there are things, you know, situations that you try and deal with, and Obviously, you've got to be fair and supportive to your staff as much as possible. I'd have to say, I mean, I've worked in racing for 35 years now, 
and things are much, much better than they were when I was younger, uh, definitely. And um, is that because of work done in racing, or is that just a reflection of the way society has changed? I think it's both. I think, at the end of the day, the responsibility is on the trainers to, to manage their staff. And a lot of it, I suppose, is social media. It's so e easy now to get a video of somebody having some abuse and post it, and people get found out much quicker. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the things that we had to endure when we were younger, there was, even if you told someone, A, they might not believe you, and B, you might get more backlash from the people that were giving you a hard time in the first place. And having said that it's gotten better in the time I've been working in racing, I grew up with stories of it being far, far worse in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So it is always getting better, I, but there's always more we can do, isn't yeah. there, with anything?